This is Dirk Manning, the writer and creator of Nightmare World, Tales of Mystery, and Love Stories About Death, as well as that Right or Wrong column over at Newsarama.com. And you are very fortunate right now because you are listening to Genretainment. Hello, everyone. You're listening to Genretainment at SciFiPulseRadio.com. We're your hosts, Marks. And Julie. And today we chat with Victor R. Solis, the co-creator of the popular live-action comic book web series, Generic Girl. This Jack Kirby-inspired series follows the adventures of closet comic geek Jillian Romero and her aspiring superhero roommate Pete Kirby, a.k.a. Captain Freelance, as they battle scheming villains, bureaucrats, and one mysterious machine. So Elise tells us how his International Academy of Web Television-nominated series was created, provides behind-the-scenes stories, gives tips to web series creators, shares his views of the future of web series, and much more. Now, what you just heard at the beginning of the show was a snippet from the theme song from our web series, Reality on Demand, a song composed and performed by our friend T. Sean Hardy. And you can find our web series at realityondemandseries.com. Now, enough of our blabbing. Let's get to our interview with writer and producer Victor Solis. Pete Kirby was a pathetic, ordinary young man until one day... Struck by a bolt of radioactive lightning, his life changed forever as he became... Captain Freelance! Quite you, Jalen Romero's humble origin story began with a clandestine rendezvous outside Sheboygan. Gross! You did not just imply that my parents conceived me in a roach motel! Yes, I did. Generic girl, fighting the powers of law and order the American way. This is Marks, and you're listening to Genre Entertainment. I'm here today with uh, one of the creators of the web series Generic Girl. Uh, could you introduce yourself, please? Absolutely. Uh, thanks, Marks, for, for having me on. This is Victor Solis. I'm one of the two co-creators of the, uh, the live-action comic, as we call it, Generic Girl. My uh, producing partner is Stephen Wasserman. Uh, I've been working with him for many years, uh, probably dating back to the fourth grade when we were tossing ideas back and forth about science fiction and other nonsense. Uh, so <laughs> I've known him for, for a couple decades now. <laughs> for those listeners who haven't seen Generic Girl yet, could you please explain what it's about? Yep, it is a um, comic book world come to life. We follow a uh, a comic book, a closet comic book geek girl, Jillian, and her adventures with her roommate, the aspiring superhero Pete Kirby, a.k.a. Captain Freelance, as they battle villains, mayhem, bureaucrats, labor unions, and uh, one mysterious machine with a god complex. <laughs> Now, I thought it was interesting, like the whole Captain Freelance element and him having money issues. <laughs> I think a lot of f- filmmakers, when they start out, could, could relate or create creative uh, people. What was the, the thing that kind of sparked that storyline? Yeah, we have definitely retold our, our story, which is a bit tongue-in-cheek about how uh, Stephen and I were painting the inside of his house. And it was uh, a pretty laborious project. And, well, the two of us just started dishing ideas back and forth. But really, we had been thinking at the end of 2010, well, what are we going to work on next? We have already been 
training ourselves essentially as most filmmakers do through uh, shooting music videos, um, uh, spec commercials, then moving into commercials for clients and uh, doing uh, short films. That that's all been you know in our past, and we said, well, let's talk about doing something entertaining for a wider audience. We were not yet at the level where we were ready to start engaging with investors and and possible financiers for a, a feature. I think a lot of other independent uh, series creators find themselves in those positions as well. So in a way, it was by design that we said, how can we create something that we're going to enjoy. We truly hope that other people will enjoy it and have fun and uh, make something that's going to engage. And rather than doing a one-off, which would be like a short film, uh, why not create a series following these characters in in a world that we have loved for quite a while in, in the world of comics, the tropes and conventions and silliness that you see in the old Silver Age comics uh, dating back to the Jack Kirby and Stan Lee days. And some of the things that were silly about the TV shows that were adapted from comics going back to, say, the Adam West Batman, uh, the Lou Ferrigno Incredible Hulk, the um, Bionic Man, you know, the Six Million Dollar Man, Lee Majors in the, uh, the later, you know, 70s and 80s. So that's the impetus for for Generic Girl. And obviously it was a loving send up of all those silly conventions and tropes. So uh, we wanted to work with uh, a heroine who traditionally would be more the love interest, the girl next door, the Mary Jane to Peter Parker's Spider-Man. We thought, well, why not make her the heroine and and the lead of the story? And she doesn't have any powers, really, either, which is an interesting twist. <laughs> <laughs> in, in this world of heroes and, and villains, uh, if anything, her power is that of common sense. Uh, <laughs> whereas everybody else in this wacky world um, seems to jump into action first. And we essentially created the, the origin story with Jillian in, in season one. Uh, we have not yet seen that she must rise to fight in a way that she can through perhaps logic, rationale, you know, subterfuge and uh, and her own reasoning skills as opposed to death rays and heat vision or anything like that. So uh, she's she's the most grounded human character in, in that crazy world. And when you decided to make it a web series, were you very familiar at the time about the different web series that existed at the time or were you kind of new to that world? That, that's a good question. Uh, it, this is definitely the first uh, series that we've done. We immediately, when we started considering the medium, started to do our research. Like, well, what else is out there? We had not yet been a part of the community. We certainly knew other filmmakers. Stephen was uh, uh, wrapping up his studies at uh, USC's uh, School of Cinematic Arts in the master's program. Um, we had definitely worked on a lot of projects uh, in various capacities, but we didn't know the community yet. And um, from the get-go, I started discovering series like uh, David Nett's Gold, uh, in Night of the Zombie King, Mark Gardner's Cell. And this was, you know, late 2010. doesn't seem that long ago, but in terms <laughs> of how fast new media has moved, and how fast uh, the web series medium has evolved. It does feel like a while back, and it's been amazing to 
see how well the community has has rallied around one another. And what we've really enjoyed is discovering the cooperative camaraderie of this group. Um, it, it really benefits from the uh, the, the, the handholding, the, uh, the the shepherding of, of fellow creators' uh, projects through all the way to completion and uh, d- discovering that ultimately we want to help each other out, work our way up the ladder. It isn't competition. You know, really, we're all competing with any other form of entertainment that a viewer could be watching. Uh, we're, we're not competing amongst ourselves as series. Uh, I, I've never looked at it that way. We would rather collaborate and see how we can all grow because a lot of us are basically at the at the launching stage of our careers. There are some that have moved from the TV and film industries into the autonomy and the freedom of uh, the series community. But in the same way, they're also trying to negotiate these waters and figure out what is the model that works all the way from development through production through promotion. Before I forget, congratulations on winning Best Web Series or Music. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. We were really happy to, to share that with our, our composer, uh, Daniel James Chan. We have to give him the uh, uh, the rightful shout out. Yeah, that was from the uh, unofficial Google Plus Film Festival. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Who put that on, that, that film festival? It was a really amazing process um, through just the uh, efforts of a couple of people, Adam Cohen and uh, Jamie Bird. Uh, they are both, uh, you know, veteran filmmakers. And uh, we give them a lot of credit for getting so many people to rally behind this evolutionary step in film festivals, which is um, a bit of a hybrid process. It was one part online, which is probably 90% of it, and then 10% offline in the real world by having these red carpet events and screenings in both Asheville, North Carolina, and Los Angeles. So we were able to see a lot of the other filmmakers here in Los Angeles, meet them, and uh, do some some interviews on the red carpet. Uh, But the screenings of the short films and the series were actually uh, online using Google Plus as as their main interface. So it was really amazing to see uh, a global audience and uh, global uh, submissions to this uh, festival. It's in its second year, so it's it's a very exciting new step for for film festivals, and perhaps there are other festivals that will be taking this route. Yeah, it was a unique approach. Hopefully we'll get another one next year. I really like the cleverness of sticking to just a few locations, because you know that can be really uh, burdensome on a, a web series creator uh, financially and time-wise. Was it difficult writing for such few locations, and, and were those sets or actual locations? The, yeah, a couple of very, uh, uh, very, very valid points in there, especially for as we talk to other series creators. Um, the the first question is is a quick one as far as what was the nature of the of the locations um if, if people even just watch the the first episode within the first 20 seconds when we do the 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 recap uh and it's odd to do a recap in the first episode which is why we called it previously not on generic girl uh, <laughs> give snippets of all the things that are to come in the show and um we have very few exter- exterior locations the majority of it uh, was all interior, and uh, we decided to go with um, some office spaces that uh, Stephen Wasserman had access to 
in his uh, his father's law office building. Uh, so there were a couple of suites that were available. So we uh, looked at paint colors. We grabbed some paint, painted some walls, and uh, basically made those offices into into standing sets, as it were, um, without having to actually do a build, uh, which definitely would have costed much more. So that's the first question about, you know, were, were they sets? We uh, created those spaces, the villain's lair uh, of the evil doctor, uh, the apartment of Jillian and Pete, and uh, then the offices of the uh, labor unions, the local 666, henchmen's union, and uh, the Heroes Guild of America. Now, as far as planning uh, from a pre-production standpoint, you know, I had a, a similar conversation with the gentleman of uh, Eight and Five, uh, recently when we interviewed them uh, via Hangout. And uh, obviously their show uses a green screen tremendously to great effect. And that was a wise decision from a pre-production and from a financial standpoint um, because they decided to spend a lot of time in post. Now for ourselves, since we did want to keep the budget very manageable, uh, we thought, number one, what do we have access to? Well, great. We have these offices. Now, how can we maximize that uh, into into our sets? So you're right. That definitely informs the writing. And I would advise anybody to first think instead of, hmm, I'm in the writing stage. I'd like to have a car chase. I'm going to blow up a building. We're going to jump over rooftops instead. Okay, what do I have access to? You know, what are our existing resources? Um, What can we do as inexpensively as possible and let that inform the script as opposed to vice versa? I'm a filmmaker also and work in web series. So I always like to ask the techie question about what equipment was used. Uh, What type of cameras did you use to film? Right. Uh, At that time, we were definitely looking at at SLRs. Um, Steven, through his production company, already owned the 60, the 60D. Um, we found that that really was the most bang for the buck, um, as opposed to jumping up to the extra bells and whistles of something like the uh, the Canon 5D. Um, so the 60D was our, our workhorse. Our director of photography, Jack Alexander, also owns a 60D with uh, his own uh, glass. And the more interesting decision that we made in, in terms of the equipment there were the the optics uh, when we did our reference work and looked at the older shows and thought about the aesthetic of the 1960s and 70s in terms of sitcoms and those uh, uh, shows I'd mentioned like the the original Amazing Spider-Man or uh, the Batman with Adam West and uh, Cesar Romero we thought how could we achieve uh, more of a softer look that was consistent with the uh, the saturation of colors that you would see in older comics. In comics back then, it wasn't glossy. It was pulpy, almost newsprint that these things were were printed on. Mm-hmm. So we chose to go with uh, a variety of uh, Steinel vintage German lenses. Some of them date actually back to the 1950s. So they were all prime still photography lenses. And they do give a you know, little bit of breathing. The, the image size moves slightly. When you rack focus, with the exception of a couple of times that we use zooms uh, that were much more modern lenses from maybe like the early 2000s, we chose to go with primes and and have those vintage primes to give us um, a, a, an older 
look to, to go with the aesthetic of the piece. So that's that's what we chose as far as the camera goes. And how did you do the sound? Yeah, sound was uh, using our old workhorse uh, uh, H4N Zoom, uh, the Zoom recorder. I, I think a lot of filmmakers have embraced that. Um, and uh, definitely for serious production, what we've advised when we've talked to other aspiring filmmakers, whether it be scripted narrative, like generic girl, or you know your documentary, uh, you're doing even even something like a vlog where you're primarily in one room, is to definitely use uh, non-sync sound to definitely go with an external sound recorder that that we've always adopted from you know uh, filmmaking at the at the higher levels where you have your separate sound mixer and your your boom operator. So yeah, we did have our, our boom operator um, using a, a shotgun mic and uh, recording straight into the Zoom. So we slated every shot and used the um, on-camera mic very, very few times. Uh, we, we do it a little bit more often when we have smaller shoots and, uh, and shoots for, for clients. Uh, but that's just to help with the syncing of the uh, on-camera mic sound and then the the external zoom microphone. Uh, so the, so the zoom was our, our main uh, piece of equipment for for sound. And you guys have interesting and colorful costumes and props. Uh, who did that work? Yeah, we uh, owe a big debt of gratitude to uh, uh, Stephen's wife, Laura Wasserman. Uh, she's definitely not a costume designer by trade, but uh, she's always loved helping with uh, the, the more the crafts that have to do with, you know, the hands-on painting, the production design, uh, the the choice of uh, blouse for Jillian. And how are we going to come up with, say, you know, the character of Hildy, her outfit? That was definitely something that Stephen and I began with the conceptual sketches, uh, working with our conceptual artist and the uh, artist who also drew all of the um, a comic style animated intro where you see uh, uh, Pete, uh, the pathetic young man on a pa- park bench and Jillian's story. Uh, that was Peter Jin, who is an artist and a filmmaker. So we first worked with him to get the conceptual sketches down and the uh, color palette for each one of the characters. Obviously a lot of purples and reds with the villains. And then with the heroes, we wanted something brighter. So Jillian goes from a pink and uh, then into an orange top. Uh, Pete always has his Hawaiian shirt. He's just flown in from Guam uh, and he has... uh, uh, you know his cargo shorts and his uh, uniform or uh, superhero costume is kind of underneath all of that, all of his civilian wear. So Laura was uh, was fantastic, and uh, she brought in a couple of her friends as well to help with the final tailoring. And uh, some of the stuff was off the rack, and others like Hildy's costume was a bit more built up from different materials. So so they were very very helpful. And you have a great cast to bring the characters alive. How'd you find your lead actors? Yeah, that was uh, through a fairly traditional method of, of casting. Uh, fortunately, since we're here in Los Angeles, we're based in Florence, just south of, of LAX. So since we have the benefit of the, the big circles of actors here, we actually chose to do a, uh, a SAG New Media contract uh, before SAG and AFTRA uh, had merged. So um, we wanted to make sure that we had as wide a pool of actors to draw from. So we definitely have always encouraged series creators to to go through casting and, and make the time to go through several rounds. We used uh, LA Casting 
and nowcasting.com, those particular websites, and put out the uh, the general casting call. So we went through that first phase of you know tremendous numbers of headshots and resumes, and we were looking for the girl next door that was accessible to the audience, we started bringing in the actors, and uh, several of the actors, uh, we really loved their improv and their skills, and so brought them in again to read for some of the other parts, such as Hildy, as well as the women who appear in the local 666 and the Heroes Guild of America. So even though we didn't initially cast for all of those female characters, we found that these actresses really had the skills and uh, the... Uh, the the shtick that we were looking for. Uh, so with uh, Alexander Olsen, uh, she came in probably towards the last round of that first phase. Uh, we really enjoyed her energy and what she was bringing to the role. We've never uh, painted ourselves into the corner of this is the character, this is how we see her, or this is how we see Pete, and we've got to find somebody that fits that. Instead, we've found it more effective to go with the open approach of let's see what they're bringing in and let's see what unique twist they're presenting to the character. So Alexandra was called in a second time to delve a little bit more into the character. Uh, we always had them read on book, read some of the, the lines uh, from from the script or from the sides. And then we also did a lot of improv to get a feel for uh, what else could they stretch to do with these scenarios between Jillian and Pete, for example, or between Jillian and Hildy, since it's a very different dynamic when this crazy villainess stumbles into the, the hero's apartment. Uh, so Alexandra came back a total of three times to test out the chemistry between her and Matthew Borer, who we eventually cast in, in the role of Pete. So you have to make the time to really uh, run the actors through through the paces and really make sure that the chemistry between the leads is is going to work for the piece. Right. Now you did improv during the audition process. Was there any improv during actual filming? Uh, there was definitely improv with uh, a few of the characters, not so much with with the heroes. Um, occasionally with with Matthew Borer as Pete. Um, he's got a great background uh, through Upright Citizens Group Brigade and Groundlings. So there were certain lines where we gave him creative license, but definitely with uh, Johnny Scordis, who plays uh, Hank the Henchman. He's a stand-up comic here in Los Angeles, and uh, we would always do, you know, maybe one or two takes uh, on the book, and then that last take was one for Johnny. And uh, a lot of times it made its way in terms of his, his improv into the actual final episode, as in the episode, I believe it's episode two, Requiem for a Henchman, when he's dispatched to his doom. And he just rambles and rambles about wanting to see a sequel to The Crow. Uh, that was Saul Johnny. And um, he, he's just got a, a crazy knack for creating these characters and these voices and so we knew that we wanted to also bring him back, not just for the first henchman, but Frank the henchman, Frank Sr. the henchman. So whenever you see a henchman, with the exception of uh, Mo Marcellus Robbins, who plays the enormous tank, you know, he's, he's a linebacker of a man. Johnny uh, plays a lot of the different henchmen, and, and he really came up with a lot of the, the shtick and their voices and the lines uh, himself. So it was awesome to have somebody who was bringing that, that improv skill set to the game. 
Right. Yeah, I remember the crow sequence was very funny. And whenever he was up at the door dropping off the package, I don't know if that was improv or not, but it felt like it could have been partially improv. It, 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 it finally was for, for episode one. Um, we had always had certain lines scripted in in the mindset of let's see what Johnny can do with this. Uh, so, for example, we had written, um, I just need to get your, your John Hancock right here. Uh, and then he started running with the whole Hancock gag. Uh, so if you give a talented uh, improv uh, comedian enough fuel, uh, they'll, they'll take that and make a fire out of it. So uh, a lot of the uh, nuance and the the bits were, were definitely owed to, to Johnny. Now, especially with it being a comedy, uh, I'm, I'd imagine there was a few goofs or, or funny moments on set. Uh, is there anything you can think of? share with us well that's yeah that you brought that up when we were talking about you know going back to the the format of the medium itself that web series is not just i'll post up my six episodes or however many and and we're done and we'll see what happens we said you know we've got the not so much the bloopers but we have these outtakes that are not going to make it in, like say with the ladies of uh, Winkies, the uh, the gentlemen's club in Guam, where the uh, Deus Ex Machina is hanging out when he should be trying to save Jillian, and uh, you have these uh, ladies in a strip club. Uh, so uh, they had a whole lot of improv as well. We knew we weren't going to be able to use it all, so we said, well, the the great thing about syndicating your uh, your videos, your episodes online is that you can do it on a regular basis. So we actually are sitting on a library of different outtakes and uh, and bits that we have shot. And one of them is the uh, Henchman 101 series, as it were. You know, we've posted one of those on, on YouTube, but we have several of them with uh, Johnny just rambling and ranting in his different uh, henchman characters uh, that we're just, uh, posting up every Wednesday. So we've actually decided to make that into just more supplemental content. So if people will be watching, they'll, they'll start to catch up with those over the next few weeks. Now, there's going to be a season two, right? Can you tell us a little bit about how you plan, like when and how you're going to launch that? Yeah, we have fortunately connected with some great people out of New York City. Um, they are uh, slowly building up this uh, network that's going to be launched. 2013, and uh, it's going to be by comic fans for comic fans. Um, it's a network of uh, comic reviewers, professional comic artists, uh, web series creators, of course, like um, ourselves with Generic Girl, um, and we were continuing to reach out to other series who are uh, embracing the worlds of film with uh, with comics. So through their connections and through their uh, fantastic support of our show, we're looking forward to developing season two and launching that probably uh, the, the middle or towards the end of, of 2013. Uh, so we're going forward with the uh, with the plan of having a total of three seasons. Um, you know, season one, the origin story, the world building of this uh, comic book universe that the characters inhabit. Uh, season two, we want to introduce, of course, a, a few new characters, but really start to run with Jillian as a very active hero. Um, she has to take the call. Uh, she has to rise into action. She's got to battle people that she never thought she would. And since her background is that of someone who has turned down 
her own love of comics and her love as a creator in episode one. She says, oh, I better sell my issues of Amazing Girl. And Pete says, that was your best work. You know, she has suppressed her love of creating to go into pre-law and to be a philosophy major. And that's not really her true life. That's not really what she wants to do. And, you know, we've definitely channeled that from people we know and, and ourselves. Like, you, you have to believe in filmmaking as your calling. You have to believe in the creative process. Uh, you have to, as Mark Gant has said recently, uh, create that door of your own and walk through it. Don't wait for somebody else to open up that door for you. So we want Jillian really come into her own and realize that she is a hero herself and she has her own mission and her own skills and powers that she can bring to the to the fore. Um, so that's a little bit what we're using to fuel uh, season two. You're very active in the web series community now. I'm curious what you think the future of web series, especially for independent web series creators, might look like. Yeah, we've uh, recently had this uh, conversation. In fact, I, I think we have this conversation with uh, almost every filmmaker, <laughs> whether they come from, as I said before, uh, film and TV, the traditional industries, and are trying to seek the autonomy and the independence of um, of the series format uh, and, and the ability to engage their own audiences. Um, and then speaking with um, aspiring filmmakers, one of the first initiatives that Stephen and I did to reach out to other filmmakers is through creatorup.com. They have brought together uh, different series creators uh, to create this series of, um, of courses. They're all video courses about series filmmaking, uh, production, and promotion. Uh, so, for example, Mark Gant discusses um, his background with the Bannon Way and uh, how to pitch and develop a series. Um, Stephen and I talk about uh, pre-production and, uh, again, you know, making the most of all your resources. So it's been fantastic seeing that other series filmmakers are coming together to help the next generation. And that's what we're looking at. There's a lot of kids out there. And I say kids, but this goes all the way from high school up through the 20-somethings that really want to tell their own stories. But um, it feels like a daunting process to a lot of them as, as we've spoken to them. So instead, we want to make this more approachable that, you know, you're teaching yourself the uh, the skills that you need and uh, you're learning what it takes to sustain a story. So those younger filmmakers, they're really looking at online and the new media space as not just a launch pad to try to get into some higher level of the, the filmmaking industry. They're looking at new media and online as the destination. Uh, this is the place. Online is where you're going to be able to uh, create your story to uh, slowly build your audience, your following, and be able to directly distribute your content right to the fans. We've seen this model happen with music uh, through the uh, era of Napster and uh, MySpace and going from a very traditional top-down model with the record labels to now you make your uh, music and you get it right out there to the fans. So we're, we're very, very close to that tipping point in a way now with the proliferation of different uh, distribution models that are out there. Uh, we first launched with JTS.TV. Uh, JTS means uh, just a story. And uh, they are going with a subscription model. And now more 
platforms are starting to adopt that model. Uh, you have um, uh, sites like Distriber with two Bs. There's Distrify. Chill has just launched their new uh, Chill Direct, where uh, the fans, the viewers, will be able to uh, pay directly. So now that's the big question, as uh, TubeFilter recently um, posed in their event here in Los Angeles, is uh, pay to play. You know, are the audience members willing to pay. People pay for Netflix, people pay for Hulu Plus. So I think that now the marketplace is really rich with a new supply of distribution options. And it's to the benefit of the creators that they will now be able to figure out, well, what's the model that's going to work best for me to reach an audience? Of course, you've got a fantastic product. Uh, so, uh, as we've said, you know, go back to the script, spend more time in your drafts. If you think it's good, get some people to help you as your story midwives, as we call them to, to get your project through really get good constructive criticism. So I think that the series format is definitely here to stay as humans. We always tell stories. It's, it's what we do as, as people very rarely does a storyteller just uh, give you one episode and that's the end. You know, the, the bard would tell many acts. Uh, the bard in medieval times would tell of one tale of a king and then on to the next king's uh, story and the, the prince and the princess. So there's always this chain. And here we are, you know, 2012, 2013. There is a chain that you can tell with your characters and also know when the story is over. Like we've said, OK, we're going to go with probably three seasons. There are other characters and there are other genres that we want to jump into. So for the aspiring series creators, really make sure that you love your story and that you love your characters because you're going to have to live with it for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not like a film where you just do it once, then you're done and you move on to the next film. Right. And, and for those of us who are still interested in features, I mean, we're definitely developing features. It, it's a very different animal. It's a very different medium. So certain stories... Uh, certainly are better told in, in the feature medium. Uh, it's a, a contained tale and uh, you're going for perhaps, you know, 80 to 100 plus minutes. But for the series, uh, for example, interviewing eight and five, they went for 16 episodes. It's over two hours of content. We wrote eight episodes initially. Uh, we wanted to keep our, our count, our page count down uh, in terms of production, so we could manage uh, all of the, the days of production and, of course, the days of post-production. Uh, but we inevitably expanded out and said, you know, this tale is better told in 10 episodes. And some people have done, say, three episodes uh, with the goal of trying to uh, gain more interest and garner some more financial backing to make the rest of the show. And that's a different model. Uh, we decided let's make something that is contained that we can offer to the audience and slowly get them behind it. And if they love it, then great. We have a following and we can tap that following for the future when we say, hey, guys, we're getting ready for what's next. What's next is, is season two. Are you are you behind us? And uh, slowly get to a point where if the audience is willing to give that one dollar, five dollar whatever the amount may be, whether it's through a PayPal donation, it's through a crowdfunding campaign, selling your merchandise, whatever you can do to now sustain yourself as a filmmaker. But it begins with that great story and building the following behind it. 
monetizing a series seems like it's the big hurdle. And we talked about the pay model. So do you think that's going to be the future option or, or what about ads, you know, on those kind of options? Yeah. Uh, when we've talked to other folks about this, we've looked back at other other models and something I think you learn in, in business classes. And when you look at this more of a business standpoint, because it, it is show business, is what are some other case studies out there? Like I mentioned, the music industry, uh, definitely the record labels uh, really tanked and uh, and rightfully so. The uh, studios are, are approaching this new online model with a lot of trepidation and they are moving very, very slowly. Of course, they're huge corporate entities and, and they must move slowly. So we've looked at other uh, case studies like, say, uh, the newspaper industry. What has happened to Time and, and Newsweek? Uh, they cannot sustain the production costs of making a paper-based uh, form of, of news. They, they are no longer going to be making a magazine. But Time has just, just launched um, their new site, which is primarily video. You've seen the rise of Huffington Post with uh, uh, their video, and now they're doing you know, live broadcasting. And even dating further back for people who know the cinematic history of coming out of vaudeville is there's talent. There's talent out there. Now the parallel is YouTube. You know, the YouTube is a new vaudeville. Some people love to do one type of uh, comedy. Other people love to comment about the, the goings on in the news. So vaudeville eventually moved into uh, the film. They needed talent. They tapped into those comedians and um, acrobats, the uh, almost circus and sideshow performers, who some of them were, made a fantastic transition. They moved into talkies, those who uh, had the voices and that could um, uh, create these characters on, on film with sound. Uh, so now for the YouTube generation, we're looking at appealing directly to the fans, but how do we do this and how can we sustain ourselves? Personally, I feel that based on the history of, of YouTube over the past few years, that the uh, ad revenue has dropped tremendously. Um, we've seen that in articles like the Chicago Tribune interviewing um, uh, Driving Sports and, and their founder, who I believe, uh, if, if I'm quoting correctly, the revenue from the ads uh, on YouTube had dropped for him uh, about 90%, which is tremendous. That, that would be a tremendous drop for any business. So how can this business of a film producer, uh, a filmmaker who produces a product, you are producing a, uh, a, a piece of entertainment or perhaps documentary, something that moves an audience. Now, how can you get that product out to the marketplace and, and sell it for a profit? So YouTube and the ad revenue model is, is definitely changing. Now with the so-called channelization of YouTube, we're seeing that no longer is it easy for uh, one person to start doing vlogs or doing their very low-cost episodes, posting those and trying to get ad revenue. Um, the, the CPM rates, the, the cost for every thousand views, is extremely low. Now what you must do is be part of a network. So we've seen the rise of full screen, a big frame, Machinima, Nerdist, these enormous networks of channels. You need to be able to make content, number one, that's really appealing, so that number two, you can appeal to a bigger network, a bigger entity that says, hey, you have something that an audience is willing to watch. And then step three, network with that larger group, like in our case for this new comic-centric network, 
um, will be able to benefit from this entire shared audience. Uh, so now if you're, say, a comic reviewer, and every week, Wednesday, you get your comic pull, you talk to people on YouTube about it, you shoot your short little videos, there's a lot of great young people who are doing that. Now, that's fine that they're talking about comics, but they need to become a part of a network of comic reviewers. So I think that's the new paradigm on, on YouTube. I'm specifically talking about YouTube as a platform because uh, it's the biggest of them all. It's where the audience is. The, the second place and third place video platforms are far, far behind. So if you're on that platform, you need to be a part of a larger group so you can cross promote and say, hey, if you really love Spider-Man, this is what I do. Now, if you want to watch Green Lantern, go check out his channel. If you want to look at cosplay, go look at this girl's channel. So you want to find that niche market of like-minded people that are interested in your, say, geek culture, whether it's you know video games or it's role-playing games or maybe the people who love horror and band together with them. You can make your own network. You don't have to wait for that phone call from... Uh, the collective you know, management uh, company or a uh, big frame or full screen, you can make it yourself. And if you show that you have the subscribers, you demonstrate that you have an audience, now you're in a much better position to be asking for uh, the direct payment from fans. And so that's one model to look at if you're going to be on, on YouTube. It's not about the ad revenue. It's about building up the audience and then being creative about selling merchandise or, you know, selling the DVDs, the Blu-rays, uh, what have you, because now you have an audience that's eager and they're, they're willing to listen to you. That's good advice. Uh, speaking of advice, now that you've done season one of Generic Girl and, and you're very involved in the web series community now, I was wondering if you could give us like a, a, a big do and don't for web series creators, or perhaps I should say filmmakers wanting to become web series creators. Yeah, yeah. The do's and the don'ts. Well, the the big do, and uh, this applies to the, uh, all aspects of, of filmmaking, but definitely if you're uh, proffering or uh, content online, is uh, it, this is this is all social. Uh, these are social platforms. Uh, you know, Marks, what you're doing is social outreach. You're expanding to other creators and and sharing with with other aspiring creators. All of these platforms are social. And that's the number one word is you have to know that you're making the time, not just for production, which to us, it's almost becoming like, say, 30, 20 percent of our effort, 70, 80 percent plus of your effort is on the outreach. It's on whatever you want to call it, audience development, marketing, promoting. It's all the same thing. It's reaching out to new people. You have to find your platform of choice. Uh, some people really love Google+. Plus. Some people really love Twitter. Others have tremendous followings on Tumblr. If you look at some amazing shows like um, uh, The Misadventures of Awkward Black Girl, or just search for Awkward Black Girl, um, Issa Rae, the creator, is now in a TV deal with a network for launching her own show. She started with one subscriber back in the day, so uh, the guild started with one subscriber back in the day. Don't seek to emulate those top shows, um, you know, go with your own vision. If it's something that you really love, like you want to talk about biology and snails and crustaceans, like, hey, pick pick your interest and, and run with it. Um, if you're passionate about it, that passion is going to come 
uh, through on screen. So number one, you know, have that great passion. And number two, it's it's got to be social. So you post your video, share it with others, ask them for comments. If you're on YouTube, get the creator playbook and look at it religiously because those are the set of best practices that work on YouTube. You know, the thumbnail, is it catchy? Is your title catchy? Are you following the best practices? If you look at our channel, definitely, you know, feel free to use it as a model. We don't have generic girl as our first two words in our title because that's frankly the most generic possible title. It doesn't work. Instead, use keywords and key phrases. So you have to learn um, what works out there and, and be social. You have to share with others. Ask them for advice. Ask them to comment and, and compliment other like-minded shows uh, so that you're starting to build your own network and, and then you have uh, an eager group of people who are really going to uh, go to bat for you when you say, hey, I'm doing a Kickstarter campaign uh, or, hey, my T-shirt is out. Uh, consider buying. Um, people will help you if you're if you're genuine, if you're honest and um, if, if you share socially. Uh, may I ask, what is the first two words on the website? Uh, first two words uh, for our website, it's it's gogenericgirl.com. Uh, for us. And uh, if you find us on YouTube, it's uh, Generic Girl Series. And uh, on Twitter, we are at Go Generic Girl. So we check them all. We always reply. So uh, we're always eager to uh, to talk with new people. Is there a don't you would suggest? Something that you commonly see as a mistake? We this from uh, people in publicity, in PR, uh, public relations is in polite company. You talk to People and you ask them questions and you should probably adopt that towards uh, being out in the world of, uh, of the online uh, series and new media is don't talk about yourself. <laughs> don't talk about yourself all the time. So that seems counterproductive. It's really 90% of the time, the majority of the time, you're asking other people about what they're doing. Hey, I read your webcomic. It made me laugh. Hey, I watched your horror short film. That was crazy. I loved your effects. Hey, I watched your documentary about boxing, and, and that really moved me. Get engaged with the other people first. You know, Compliment them. Ask them how did they do it. You're always going to learn something. And then at the end of that conversation, the 10% is you talk about yourself. You mention, oh, by the way, hey, if you like comics... Hey, if you love the old Adam West Batman, check out our show. You know, please subscribe. We're, we're putting out new videos. So step one is uh, talk to the other people. Ask them questions. Don't talk about yourself first. Nobody wants to hear uh, that guy at the party who's just me, me, me. Uh, <laughs> you want to first get a conversation going. Uh, don't just try to feed your content uh, to everybody else right off the bat. It pays to be friendly. Good advice. Anything else you'd like to add? Any other projects you're working on? Anything else about Generic Girl? Well, the first thing that people can tune in to see uh, before season two and and that launch comes out is, can't say too much right now, but we are putting together a, a much shorter series. It's going to involve the rising of the dead that will be marching upon our capital. Washington, D.C., and one great hero, actually one huge hero, must rise. So uh, early 20th century, pulpy, weird tales kind of feel, and uh, one amazing American hero is going to have to fight the walking undead. 
So we're going to be looking to develop that into uh, January and February of uh, 2013. Hi, I'm indie actress Jen Page from Dorkness Rising, Geek Seekers, Chopstocky Boom, and more. And you're listening to Genretainment. Thank you to Victor Solis for agreeing to the interview, and we wish him luck with Season 2 of Generic Girl. So that's it for today's Genretainment. Check back next week with all new guests from our favorite films, TV shows, novels, and web series. And don't forget about the other great shows on this channel, like Ian Cullen's SFP Now, which typically airs on Fridays, and Jeff Trek on Saturdays. Plus, we have a new show premiering very soon called The Roundtable, where various hosts from the channel team up with a few special guests to discuss hot topics in our favorite genres. And we will be right back here on this channel at scifipostradio.com next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific. And don't forget, you can also search the archives to hear any of our past episodes. Until, Until next, next time! time.